Well, hey, man, what a, what a fun morning uh, celebrating in baptism, uh, having all of our kids with us in the service. If you're a kid in the service, can I hear a shout? There we go. And some kids at heart, too. So um, that's, that's awesome. So uh, really excited to share with you this morning as we continue our series, Hope Dealers. I wanted to think back with you, though, um, and ask you a question. Have you ever changed your mind on something? Like you once thought this way, and now you think this way? One of the first things that I changed my mind on growing up was I, I used to love ketchup and hate tomatoes. Like I just couldn't get enough of ketchup. It went on everything. And, um, and I just couldn't get my mind around the tomato. Like, I just couldn't do it. I know they came from the same source. One has more vinegar than the other, but I couldn't do it. And then I got to college, something flipped, and I started liking tomatoes. My wife still says I use too much ketchup, but that's okay. Um, I made that change. When I was growing up, there was three things I wanted to be. And one of the things I wanted to be when I grew up was I wanted to be the White House press secretary. I'm not really sure why. I mean, I thought that maybe I was talking a lot or I was into politics then, but then I discovered this. When you started, full head of hair. When you ended, white hair, you know? Or you'd start and you'd have a full head of hair and then two years later, you'd be bald. And I was like, I don't want to lose my hair, you know? Um, and so I said, I'm never going to do that. Plus, I'm a terrible liar and, and I'm not going to say anything else about that. So when I was in college, I wanted that the, the woman that I married, I wanted to be taller than her. And, and I met Danny and it worked. Until you see the other photo, I'm standing on a stool. <laughs> and so I had to, you know, adjust my thoughts on that. Um, we went to a wedding last weekend, and she was six inches taller than me in heels. It was awesome. You know, I think we all have moments where we change our perspective. Something causes us to reframe or reshape our experience or our perspective. And I want to kind of guide you in one of those exercises this morning. Question for you. How did you sleep last night? Think about how you slept last night. How many of you slept really well last night? Raise your hand. Yeah, we're jealous of all of you, okay? How many of you would say you slept terribly last night? Raise your hand. That's okay. And then how many of you are kind of in the middle? Those are the only three options, just FYI. Only three options. Okay, so good, terrible, and kind of eh. You got that in your mind? Now I want you to think about, have you ever been up all night sick? Or you've been up all night taking care of somebody who was sick? Now I want you to think about last night. Doesn't that seem better? Like a lot better? Um, for those of you who had somebody sick last night, we're sorry. But as we think about that, that, that is literally what reframing is. It's saying, I have this perspective, and in light of this new information or this new question, I'm going to change how I see things. You know, one of the reasons I, I wanted to do this series in Philippians is that this, this book is all about hope and joy, even amidst difficult circumstances. And I feel like that we're in a season right now where it can be really, really hard to live with hope and joy. I mean, we're in the middle of an election season where it feels like every day your head kind of spins around like the girl in The Exorcist, you know, like, what just happened, you know, like... And how do I have perspective? How do I see things clearly, you know? We're also heading into a season in which it's really hard to have perspective. It's called the holidays, you know? And just life gets crazy and things get chaotic and people punch each other over Barbies, you know? And it's just, it's just crazy. And so the reason that I'm bringing this up is we're heading into the last section of Philippians. Over the next four weeks, we're going to wrap up this series. And, and what this section of Philippians really kind of centers on is our perspective. How do we see the world in a way that honors God and is consistent with the hope that we have? 
And so this morning, my big idea is this, that our hope in Jesus reframes everything else. So if you've got a bulletin you walked in, pull out that, that note sheet and you can fill in those blanks. Our hope in Jesus reframes everything else. And this morning, what I'm going to try to do is try to show us how through this passage that when we really actually have our hope in Jesus, not just say it with words, but that's actually how we live, that changes the way we view everything else. And it does so in, in I think, really deep ways. And I think it does so in really practical ways. It does in really simple ways. And so this morning, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. So if you have a Bible with you or a digital Bible, if you'd open it up and turn to Philippians. Philippians is about 90% of the way through the Bible. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, look for Ephesians or Colossians, and it's right there in the middle. We've been in this book for eight weeks now. It's this letter that Paul wrote from prison to his friends in a city in northern Greece called Philippi. And He's been talking a lot about what does it mean to be a person of hope? What does it mean to be somebody who serves? What does it mean to be somebody who's, who's worth emulating or following? And Josh gave a great message last week about Timothy and Epaphroditus, if you missed it, talking about what does it mean to be the kind of person uh, that is worth emulating, that's worth following in their footsteps. And this week, we're going to dive into this text, beginning in verse 1. This is what Paul writes. He says, "'Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord.'" For me to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. This morning, I want to share with you four things that are the how of us reframing. How do we reframe? Well, the first way we do is we rejoice today. We rejoice today. As Jamie said, I don't know where you're coming from today. I don't know what situation you're living in. I don't know what life looks like for you. I'm not sure if you're happy or sad, if you had a great night of sleep or a terrible night of sleep, if you're energetic or exhausted. But wherever you're coming from, I think Paul wants us to hear that today is a day that we can rejoice in. Today is a day that we can stop and say, you know what, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. And don't miss the irony here. This is a man who's in prison. He's on death row. He's looking his death square in the face. And he's writing a letter to free people who don't have a concern in the world. And he's saying, hey, guys, I'm rejoicing today. You should too. And that's because Paul understands that rejoicing is a choice. It's a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not, uh, uh, you know, like uh, I'm kind of in the mood for it. It's not a part of our circumstances. No, rejoicing is a choice. We make the decision. It's a willful moment. Kids, it's like cleaning your room. Sometimes you don't want to do it, but you do it anyway. Rejoicing is a choice. And Paul understands that when we rejoice, we reframe our perspective. We may not be in something that we're enjoying. We may not have chosen the moment that we're in. We may not be where we thought we were going to be, but yet we choose to rejoice. And Paul understands what rejoicing does. I'm going to show you. What happens with rejoicing is rejoicing ends up producing gratitude in our hearts, which leads to contentment. And I think all of us want to be at a place where we say, you know what, I, I feel good about where I'm at. I feel satisfied. I feel content. I feel happy, not in the emoji happy face, but like in the deep sense, like I feel good about where my life is. And Paul is saying that you don't get to that place by having a perfect, ideal, easy, safe, controlled, everything's wonderful, yellow brick road kind of life. He says, no, when you rejoice, it enables you to be grateful, and that gratitude builds contentment. And in a few weeks, we're going to see how Paul shares his secret to being content in any circumstances, but he's kind of hinting at it here. Hey, it starts with rejoicing in the Lord. 
And that may be what some of you came here today for. For an hour in your week, you're going to rejoice. You're going to sing about the goodness of God. You're going to claim that he's still on his throne, that he's the cornerstone, that even though life has moved, he hasn't. Maybe that's what this moment is for you this morning. Paul continues in verse 2 with some really strong language. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says the second way that you reframe your perspective is you be aware of those who add to grace. Beware of those who add to grace. Watch out for them. Keep your eye out that you don't become like one of them. And in this section, he, he uses some strong language. He talks about being aware of those who add to grace. He says, look out for the dogs, the evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. Now, these are none of the things we describe ourselves with on Facebook. You know, like, hey, I'm Scott. I've got a job at a church, and I live in Prescott, and I'm a dog, and an evildoer, and mutilate the flesh. You know, like, <laughs> I don't introduce myself that way. Um, and what's really interesting is that we've got to understand that this was written in a different world than ours. How many of you have a dog as a pet? Raise your hand. How many of you love your dog that's your pet? Okay? So you've got to understand that that's not the kind of dogs that were around in this world. Some of you guys love your dogs so much that you have pet insurance in case you go to the doctor or the, the vet. That way that he doesn't charge you an arm and a leg. In this world, that was a, that was a, a foreign concept. Dogs were either used by military units as weapons of aggression or they were wild and they carried disease. Nobody had a lap dog. Nobody had a dog that slept in their bed. That was a totally foreign concept. And so when Paul says, look out for dogs, he's saying, look out for danger. Well, who are the dogs? The dogs in this passage are people who were Jews by birth, who'd become Christians, who were going to churches like this one in Philippi and telling people, hey, it was great that you accepted the grace of Jesus, like four people shared this morning. It's grace that you accepted the love of Jesus, his unconditional love. But now that you've accepted that, you need to go the full way through and become Jewish. What that meant for men was you had to get circumcised. What that meant for everybody was is you had to begin following the 600 plus laws that came from the Old Testament. And Paul's saying that's evil. To add to the grace of Jesus is evil. To force someone to get circumcised in that way is to mutilate them. He says that is bad, that is wrong, beware of that, avoid that. My dad gave me a really simple um, uh, equation when I was growing up. He said this in a sermon and I remembered it, which is amazing because I forgot most of my dad's sermons growing up. Um, he said, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. You go, that, that, that's really simplistic, Scott. Yeah, but I watch people fail at this every single day. You know, we start like our friends did today in, in baptism. We say, hey, you know what? I know God loves me unconditionally. I'm saved by his grace. I didn't do anything to earn it. And then we graduate to works. We start with, hey, you know what? I came not deserving God's love in any way. And then a year or five years or 10 years down the road, we do all we can to earn God's love. We, we start with grace and we graduate to works. And when we do that, we're adding something to Jesus. We're adding to the completed work of Jesus as if we could do anything to earn his love. 
If we could, guys, then why did Jesus have to die? If you could have done anything to earn God's love, if you could have been a good enough person to go to heaven, then why did Jesus have to give his life? As one writer put it, it's like cosmic child abuse. If Jesus had to die, even though we were good. No, the reason why Jesus gave his life was because we couldn't do anything to earn God's love. And that's why Paul says, we are the true circumcision. We are the true believers, those who walk in grace and who worship God and put no confidence in our flesh. He says, beware those who add to grace. He continues in verse four and he says, you know, we're not going to put any confidence in our flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence. If anyone thinks he's got reason for confidence, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The first part of point three is that we reframe by recognizing all our gains are one big loss. We recognize that all of our gains are one big loss. See, Paul lists out here his, his spiritual resume, all the things that he's done that are good. He kind of lays out all of his trophies. And I'm going to use a little flip chart here to illustrate this. He lists all of the things that he's done that makes him have a reason to be confident in himself. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm of the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, which is one of the most special tribes. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Like I was literally born to two parents who were Jewish and their parents were Jewish and their parents were Jewish and I did everything right. And then once I was born, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. He memorized Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I don't know about you, but whenever I read through the Bible in a whole year, I always get stuck in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He memorized the whole thing along with the 600 plus laws. He was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was the number one persecutor of the church. He oversaw the imprisonment and execution of Christians. And as to righteousness, blameless. No one had a bad word to say about Paul, period. No one could accuse him. If you hung out with me for 24 hours, I promise you I would not be blameless. And Paul said, that's all of who I am. And he lists off this resume to say, if anybody's got a reason to think that they're awesome, it's me. He goes, but I consider all of these things one big loss when compared to the worth and value of Jesus. If you've ever balanced the checkbook, then you know this this drawing he's made. He says, all of these things were credits to my account. All of these things were reasons for me to feel like I was wealthy and rich. And yet compared to Jesus, they're completely canceled out. It's like I have nothing. The second part of your big idea is this. All of our gains are one big loss compared to knowing Jesus. It's point three. All of our gains are one big loss compared to knowing Jesus. Paul is saying all the things we think put us ahead if we look to them for worth or value or for identity, they're actually one big loss. And I think some of us really, really struggle with this. I want to illustrate this in this way. I've kind of created a, a modern version of Paul's, Paul's resume. You know, we have things on our resume, like I was born in the USA. You know, like Bruce Springsteen sings about that, you know. I was dedicated as a baby. 
I was born in a Christian family. I was baptized at six, went to church camp, went to Christian college. I got married in the church. I tithe. I volunteer. I go on a mission trip. I invite people. Now, all of these things are not bad things. They're good things. But Paul is saying you can't put your identity and worth and value in these things. He's saying these things are good things that sometimes we make God things. And Paul says all of these things in the same way that his are, they're in fact one big loss. And I think the challenge for some of us in the room today is we need to, we need to shred our resume. We don't need to stop doing those things, but we need to stop looking to those things for what only God can give. You can be a good person, but being a good person is nothing compared to knowing Jesus. And that's actually where the life is. That's actually where our hope is. That's where our future is. Not in us being a good religious person. And you say, Scott, this is for adults. No, this is for kids. I was 11 when I started struggling with this. I was in middle school when I started thinking that I was better than other people because I did more good, right, and holy things. I was proud. And that creeps in. We start in humility and we fall back into pride when we forget that it is Jesus who is worth all those things. You say, Scott, why is Jesus worth that much? Because no one knows you better than Jesus, and yet no one loves you more than Jesus. Jesus knows you better than anyone, and he loves you more than everyone. He's the only one who's come to give his life for you. He's the only one who saw you on your worst day, and that was the day that he loved you the most. And he's the only one that's unshakable in your life. He's the only one who will never leave you nor forsake you. There's nothing that could change his love about you. And I promise, no matter who is in your life and how much they say they love you, there are things that would cause them to pull back and grimace. Jesus says, there is nothing in all of creation that could separate you from my love. So my question for you is this, where is your hope based? Is your hope based in circumstances? Is your hope based in your good deeds? Is your hope based in who's going to win an election in nine days? Or is your hope based in the only one who will never change, whose worth and value is greater than anything else? Paul says all of our gains are one big loss compared to knowing Jesus. And then he brings everything together. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know God and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The fourth and final way that we reframe is we go all in on Jesus. I grew up in Las Vegas, and some of those analogies still stick with me. You go all in on Jesus. To finish up this message, I need a volunteer. Right there? Right there. Come on, let's give her a round of applause. 
I always get nervous bringing kids on stage because they always upstage me, but come on up. What's your name? Lily, I'm Scott. Nice to meet you. Can you stand right there? Okay, Lily. The Bible was not written in English like we speak. The Bible was written in a language called Greek. And in the, in the verse, let's go back to that first page right here. There's a word here that means, it says rubbish. Can you say rubbish? So the word rubbish is in English, but in Greek, there's a word that we get the word rubbish from, and it's the word scubula. Can you say that word? Scubula. Can you say that word with her? Scubula. So kind of like scuba, but, but, but different. And this word scubula, it means rubbish, but rubbish is kind of like, it's kind of like a easy way out. The real meaning of this word is, is like poop or rotting garbage. That's the meaning of this word. That's pretty gross, huh? Yeah, yeah. So what I want to do is I'm going to have my friend Tyler come out here right now, and I need your help. Are you willing to help me? Okay, so what I have here is I've got a bag of garbage that has some diapers in it. Would you be willing to smell this bag? No? Would your dad be willing to come up here and smell this bag? Okay, can, you, can, you, can you try smelling it for me? No, you're not going to do it? Okay. Does it smell pretty bad? Can you smell it from here? Does it smell kind of like this? Okay, awesome. Can you get a high five? Okay, go back to your seat. You can throw that away now because that's really getting ripe. So here's the thing. I want you to imagine the worst smelling garbage you've ever smelled. Okay? Here's the thing about smell. Smell is our strongest and most lasting memory. And that smell is what Paul says all of this stuff is like when compared with knowing Jesus. He doesn't say that all of this stuff is scubula. It is bad. He says, but when compared with Jesus, it's like scubula. And that's why for me, rubbish doesn't even begin to cut it. I'm not a Bible translator. This is the one beef I have. But I just think what Paul is saying is so strong here. He says, I count everything, everything as scubula because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubula in order that I may gain Christ. And that's why for me today, I'm not calling you to be a better person today. Paul is not calling you to do more good deeds for God. Paul is not saying, hey, get your life in order, clean yourself up, get it together. He's saying, you need to reframe your perspective and come to know the worth and value and significance of Jesus and put him in your hope, your hope in him to the point where everything else is scubula in comparison. So the next time you take out the trash at your house this week, I want you to think about this. And ask yourself, is that how much Jesus is worth to me? And so as a result, Paul says, let's go all in on Jesus. Well, what does he mean, go all in on Jesus? Well, he says three things. He says that I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. He doesn't say, I want to know things about Jesus. I want to learn more Bible facts. He's like, no, I want to know Jesus. The word here for know is the same word that's used in Genesis for the intimacy in which Adam knew Eve. There's kids in the room, so I won't fill in the blanks there. I'll leave it right there. But he says, I want to know him as well as I can know him. 
He says, I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul is very aware that things may not go well for him. Why does he know that? Because he worships someone who was killed unjustly. He's read the Old Testament and he knows there are people who were enslaved, people who were exiled. You see, you cannot read this book and think that Christianity leads you down the yellow brick road to an easy, safe, and comfortable life. In Hebrews 11, there's a picture of a cloud of witnesses that are everyone who's gone before us who are watching us follow Jesus and they are cheering us on. And it boggles their mind that we get turned up in a tizzy because we may not be able to get a tax break for giving to God's mission. In their world, there was no freedom of worship where we could just do this and no one could ask any questions. There's no concept for us getting frustrated that someone didn't put a happy face on our Facebook share but did a mad face and then said something mean to us as if that's persecution. I think we have to come to the place where we recognize if we're going to say Jesus is worth all things, that everything is scubula when compared to him, we're going to have to embrace difficulty, suffering, and even death. I'm not some masochist up here. I'm just reading the Bible to you and saying if these are the people who've gone before us, we have to change our perspective. And then he says that by any means possible, we may attain the resurrection of the dead. If we want to be resurrection people, we're going to have to face difficulty and death. Because you don't get resurrection without death. You don't get victory without adversity. And so if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to come to the place where we stop getting surprised when things are difficult. We have to come to the place where we realize that we're the, we're the aberration We're the outlier. The last 200 years of Christianity in America are the outlier in 2,000 years of church history. We're the thing that stands out on the edge. And we have to embrace that if God is going to bring resurrection power through us, it may mean that he leads us through death first. And we have to allow our hope in Jesus to reframe everything else. Because if we put our hope in anything else, we will be shaken. So there's three things I have for you to do this week that I want to challenge you with to help you reframe your perspective. The first one is I want you to exercise your gratitude muscle daily. You say, Scott, where's your gratitude muscle? Well, I'm not sure if it's near your bicep or tricep, but I do believe it's a muscle you have. See, here's my conviction. We're going to head into the month of November in two days. And the month of November is all about thanks and thanksgiving. But what has always struck me as odd is that November is about Thanksgiving and then December is about greed. We sit around our Thanksgiving tables thanking God for all we have and then now four hours later, we go out and buy more stuff. God, I'm so grateful I have everything that I need, but this circular says... And I think it's because we don't practice thanksgiving and gratitude as an ongoing discipline, we do it kind of in bits and pieces when we feel like it. So here's my challenge. For the entire month of November, I want you to write down three things that you are grateful for every single day. 
Now, some of you guys are going to have some hard days in November, and it may be, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. But I sang myself the song this week, you know, 30 days, half September, April, June, and November, and I, I do know a little bit of math. 30 times 3 is 90. If you wrote down three things you're thankful for every day in November, you'd have a list of 90 things. And that discipline would give you the strength that even on hard days, you could rejoice. You could allow God to show you things to be thankful for, even amidst adversity. And that rejoicing could lead to gratitude, that gratitude could lead to contentment, and you could begin to thank and praise God, even in circumstances you're not grateful for, naturally. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to create a gain and loss column, like I did right here. I want you to list all of the things that you think make you awesome. All the things you've done that are good things. Not bad things, good things. I mean, things that, you know, are in the Bible that are good things. Your pastors talk about, list all those good things. You may need a couple lists here because some of you guys are pretty awesome. But you list all those things and then you take your marker and you circle them and you write one big loss. They're good things. They're not God things. And sometimes we look to good things for what only God can give. There's a biblical word for that. It's called an idol. And we have to tear down our idols. The third thing I want you to do is I want you to write a letter of gratitude to Jesus. A thank you letter to Jesus. You know, I wrote a thank you letter this week to somebody who helped me out on something. But I realize it's been a long time since I've written a thank you letter to Jesus for all that he has done for me from who I was before I met him, for that punk 11 or 12-year-old who thought he was better than people. I went to a wedding this weekend with some people in Phoenix this past weekend, and they were talking about who I was when I was 18 or 19. It wasn't a fun conversation. They said, you know, Danny, if you'd met Scott, you would not have married him, you know? I'm grateful that God changed me, transformed me. So write a letter. What, what are all the things that God's done for you? What has he walked you through? When has he continued to stay with you and everyone else abandoned you? And thank him for all those things. You see, I believe one of the reasons we don't share our faith with passion is we've forgotten all the things that God's done. And you can't tell a story you don't remember. And so as you go back and remind yourself of all that God has done for you, you're giving yourself the story to share with someone else of how God has been faithful to you. At the end of the day, our hope in Jesus reframes everything else. And we have to always remind ourselves, my hope is in him and nothing less. It's one thing to sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's another thing on a Tuesday when life falls apart to live it out. But that's our challenge. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the ways that you've been faithful to us. God, there are so many stories in this room, people who are watching online, that you've just done incredible things. You've walked them through literally the valley of the shadow of death. And it's only because their faith and their hope was in you that they're still here today. God, we confess that there's a lot of places where we've put things that are good things in the place of you. 
We've looked to them for what only you can give. God, we repent today that we haven't lived as if you're that worthy. You're that significant. God, we confess that we've put our hope in things that don't deserve them. And God, we confess today that many of us have lived as if our goodness is the reason that you love us. We pray that this day you might change the way we see everything. You'd open our eyes and our ears and our heart and allow us to see that you are worthy greater than anything else. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.cornerstone.com. Prescott Cornerstone.com.